thinking about pride this evening. We're thinking about humility. I wonder, what would you say characterizes a man who is full of pride? And what would you say characterizes a humble man? If we were trying to explain to young children the crucial difference between pride and humility, what would we say is that crucial difference? Back in June, uh, Jonathan and I had the privilege of traveling to St. Louis for the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. And while we were there, we took advantage of some of our free time to visit a few of the attractions. And so many of you are familiar with the Gateway Arch uh, there in St. Louis, Missouri, which looks over the mighty Mississippi River. We also went to Forest Park, uh, this large park in the middle of St. Louis that includes the zoo and a history museum and an art museum and a lot of other things, uh, other attractions there in the park. And we went into the art museum and we're surprised to find there a clay cylinder on display from ancient Babylon. And the cylinder had writing all over it. Now, obviously, I couldn't read any of it, uh, but it had writing all over it. And I was excited to see uh, where they had the little sign underneath the cylinder telling you about it, that it dated from the days of Daniel. Uh, It dated from the 6th century B.C., And according to the little sign telling us information, the inscription was an inscription from King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so I immediately, when I was back home, went on Google and found that cylinder online and pulled up some of what it says. Just listen to some of what was on that cylinder. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the great, the majestic, the favorite of Marduk, the governor, the eminent, the cherished of Nebo, the governor without weakness, who keeps Esagil and Azida, who submits to his masters Nebo and Marduk, doing that which brings joy to them, the majestic, the pious, the loved of the great gods, the son of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon, it is I. When the great master Marduk called me and commanded me to govern the country, to direct the people, to keep the cities, to restore the temples, I obeyed my master Marduk. I built the great walls Imur Elil and Mamiti Elil of the old city. I placed the massive bulls of bronze and the terrible serpents. I enclosed the west walls of Babylon. I restored Etimanki, the tower of Babylon. I reconstructed Nebo's temple, and by means of gold and precious stones, I made it to glitter as the celestial writing. I placed the solid cedars covered with gold. I enclosed the east side of Babylon with a strong wall insurmountable. I dug the canal to the low water level. I restored the wall of Borsippa and enclosed the city. I rebuilt the temple of Maritbeli, the one that broke the arms of my enemies at Borsippa, and on. And on and on it goes. Nebuchadnezzar goes on to speak in that cylinder of how his mighty works speak 
in his favor before the gods. And how he recorded all that he did on this cylinder and placed it at the foundation of a Babylonian temple. It's an amazing artifact. And I discovered after Googling this uh, that it's only one of several such cylinders that have been dug up in uh, ancient Babylon, now in Iraq, with inscriptions from King Nebuchadnezzar. What did you hear in those words? Did you hear the pride? Did you hear the, the boasting? There can be little doubt when we dig up cylinders like that, that the Nebuchadnezzar of history matches the Nebuchadnezzar we find in the pages of Daniel, and particularly Daniel chapter 4. We can see that when Daniel describes him as a prideful man, Daniel wasn't making this up. And we all know what pride leads to, don't we? So let's look together at what God does with this haughty king. We're going to pick up from where we left off this morning. We're going to begin in verse 28. So Daniel 4, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. There is a medical term for what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. It's called boanthropy. So everybody say boanthropy. It's your word for today. Uh, boanthropy is a condition in which a person believes himself to be a cow or a bull. And we do have records of other people, both in ancient times and modern times, believing themselves to be a cow, or a bull. Uh, boanthropy is one of several different kinds of mental disorders in which people come to believe that they are a particular kind of animal. Uh, lycanthropy, for example, is a condition in which a person believes that he or she is a wolf. And it's that disorder that we believe led to the European legends of werewolves. Alan Hartman uh, points us to an account from a man named R.K. Harrison in which he tells of his personal observation of a particular patient at a mental hospital in Britain in the winter of 1946-1947. Hartman says, The patient spent all the hours between dawn and dusk outside and he only ate grass from the hospital lawns, even distinguishing grass from weeds. 
The staff cared for the patient by washing and shaving him and also providing clean water for him to drink. He was cooperative with the staff. He caused no damage to property. Physically, he appeared outwardly to be well. He seemed to suffer no ill effects from his exposure to the winter weather. The only physical abnormality that was present was that he had long hair and thickened fingernails. Now, of course, what makes the case of King Nebuchadnezzar so fascinating is who he was. Uh, There are all kinds of people in the world who experience all kinds of strange and different mental disorders, but this was not just anyone. This was the most powerful man in the ancient world at that time. And the fact that this condition came upon him, not coincidentally, not accidentally, but after a word from God had been delivered to him, calling him to repent of his pride, makes this an extraordinary event. He had been warned in dreams through the prophet Daniel that this would happen if he would not put away his arrogance. And one year to the day of Daniel's call for him to repent, the curse came upon Nebuchadnezzar. Now the lesson of this passage, of course, is that God opposes the proud. He is against those who would take for themselves his glory. God is the one who gives power. God is the one who takes power. But Nebuchadnezzar had bought into the illusion that all his accomplishments were just that, his accomplishments. And you heard it not only in Daniel, but in the inscription from the cylinder. Nebuchadnezzar failed to see that not one moment of his life was possible apart from God. Every achievement had been granted to him by God. And rather than gratitude, Nebuchadnezzar responded with self-directed praise, with boasting. I wonder, Mount Hermon, are there any Nebuchadnezzars here tonight? Are there any of us in this room who are proud of who we are or proud of what we've done, failing to recognize our own smallness before the God who works all things according to his own purpose. Pride, properly defined, is glorying in oneself. Pride is an attitude of glorying in oneself. It's, It's an attitude of deservedness. Pride desires for self to be seen. It desires for self to be praised. It desires for self to be honored. Self is the center of pride. Now, it may not always appear as blatant and as obvious as it did in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. John Piper says this. He says, pride is difficult to define because its manifestations are subtle and often do not look like arrogance. We can see this if we compare boasting and self-pity as two forms of pride. Boasting is the response of pride of success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I have achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I have sacrificed so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity 
is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. The reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be needy, but the need arises from a wounded ego. The desire is not really for others to see them as helpless, but as heroes. The need that self-pity feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It is a response to unapplauded pride. So, so pride is being centered on self. And it can come across in either of those two forms. Here, in Nebuchadnezzar's case, it comes across in boasting. but Sometimes it also shows itself in self-pity. And So I ask you, as you evaluate your own life tonight, think back over today, think back over the past week, do you recognize either of these things in your life? Is the evil of boasting in your life? Is the evil of self-pity? In your life. When we go to the Bible and we listen to its testimony concerning pride, we see that pride is described as a vile thing, an abhorrent thing, and an abomination before God. Why is pride so terrible that God would do this to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, pride is at the root of all the evil, pain, suffering, and tragedy in this world. It is pride that caused the devil and his angels to fall. 1 Timothy 3 describes the qualifications for becoming an elder. And verse 3 says of a candidate for the pastoral office, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. This is what led to the devil's fall. The devil became puffed up with conceit. C.S. Lewis said, in the midst of a world of light and love, of song and feast and dance, Lucifer could find nothing to think of more interesting than his own prestige. That's pride. A preoccupation with self. When, when we think this one way, when we are caught up and our world revolves around self, we are, we are acting satanic, demonic, devilish. This is what pride does to us. It was pride that brought about man's first sin and the curse of God upon our race and upon this world. Adam knew what God had said. Adam knew the terms of the covenant. And in outright presumption, he broke God's commandment. And that means that every moment of sickness and injury, every catastrophe, every natural disaster... Every criminal act of murder and rape and child abuse, every moment of death, these all came about because of man's pride. We were expelled from paradise, and now creation itself is groaning for the day when God will set things right. 1 Timothy 6.10 gets misquoted a lot. It doesn't say the love of money is the root of all evils. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. But we can go further with pride. We can say biblically that pride really is the root of all evil. It is a refusal to humble oneself before God in submissive joy. Why? Because of love for self. 
Pride is vile because it is so deceptive. That is, pride in your life and pride in my life has a way of blinding us to reality. Pride causes us to fall into all kinds of other sins that otherwise we, we would avoid. So, for example, Obadiah spoke to the nation of Edom in Obadiah 3, and he said, The pride of your heart has deceived you. That's what pride does. It deceives us. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Pride causes us not to fear God. Pride is the beginning of folly. Therefore, when we give way to pride, we suddenly become capable of all kinds of heinous acts. In Romans 3, Paul quotes verse after verse after verse from the Old Testament about the depravity of man. But at the end of his whole description of man's fallenness, he quotes Psalm 36.1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is why mankind is capable of so much wickedness. There is no fear of God. Why? Because pride exalts self and belittles God. Mount Hermon, pride is the enemy of everything good in your life. And it's described in the scriptures as a snare. Psalm 59, 12, David prays, For the sin of their mouths, the word of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. Pride will trap you. Pride will ensnare you. High thoughts of self can only lead to your destruction. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he what? Lest he fall. What is the effect of pride on your relationships? Pride makes you unloving. Jesus said that, that people would be known, that his people would be known by their love. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us something about love. One of the things it says there is that love is not proud. Pride and love, they don't go well together. You cannot be utterly concerned with self and be a loving person. Those things don't mix. Proverbs 13.10 says that stubborn pride results in strife. It's pride that brings discord and division and conflict into our lives. And whatever callings God has placed on your life, whatever ministries God has called you to, pride will destroy those. In fact, God gave Paul a thorn in his flesh. Paul prayed, God, take this away from me. God wouldn't take him away from it. Why? Paul said that the thorn in the flesh was to keep him humble so that his ministry wouldn't be destroyed. Paul especially needed this because God had blessed him in some unique ways. And uh, with God's blessings always comes a greater temptation to pride. Uh, Moses warned Israel about this. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses said to Israel, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, 
And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today, you will surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. You see, pride is not something we can treat lightly. If there's any such thing as a small sin, Pride is not that. Uh, Those who live in self-righteousness are furthest away from God. Don't we see Jesus teach that over and over again in the Gospels? Uh, There's a reason that Jesus saved his strongest rebukes for the Pharisees, for those who were caught up in their own self-righteousness. To quote C.S. Lewis again, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. But the proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. Do you remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18? Both were praying. But the Pharisee was proud. He was self-righteous. And and in the Greek, verse 11 literally says, "The the Pharisee standing prayed to himself. In other words, though the Pharisee was praying, because of his pride, he wasn't really praying at all. He was was praying to self. He might have thought he was praying to God, but God had nothing to do with the prayers of the proud Pharisee. You see, pride will not only disrupt your relationship with others, pride will disrupt your relationship with God. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud. So church, we need to hear this tonight. This is the message of Daniel 4. This is the message that was being given to Nebuchadnezzar. Humble yourself before Almighty God. We don't want Him to oppose us. We don't want God against us as individuals, as families, and certainly not as a church. If you work in business and you conduct your business in pride, you should expect that God will be opposed to your work. If you're trying to raise a a, a good moral family, but you're doing so in pride, you should expect God to be opposed to that work. Whatever it is you're doing, if you do it in pride, expect God to be against it. But if you do it in humility, in His strength, calling out to Him, then expect Him to be in it. The Puritan William Law wrote this. He said, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. 
Under the banner of this truth, give up yourselves to the meek and humble spirit of the Holy Jesus. Humility must sow this seed or there can be no reaping in heaven. Look not at pride only as an unbecoming temper, nor at humility only as a decent virtue. No, one is death and the other is life. One is all hell, the other is all heaven. That's how we're to think of pride and humility. So much as you have of pride, so much as you have of the evil one alive in you. So much as you have of true humility, so much you have of the Lamb of God within you. Could you see with your eyes what every stirring of pride does to your soul? You would beg of everyone you meet to tear this viper from you, though it might mean the loss of a hand or an eye. Could you see what a sweet, divine, transforming power there is in humility? How humility expels that poison. How humility makes room for the Spirit of God to live within you. You would rather wish to be the footstool of all the world than want any of the smallest degree of it. Friends, what has God promised to those who live in pride? Isaiah 2.11 The haughty looks of a man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In other words, there is coming a day when the pride of men will be utterly crushed. And we should pray that God would strip us of our pride now by the work of the Spirit so that we don't have to face complete destruction on the day when God condemns the wicked in hell. So, how do we rid ourselves of pride? How do we find true humility? Well, let's listen to the last verses of our chapter and let's hear how the newly humbled Nebuchadnezzar speaks. Pay attention to these words. Beginning in verse 34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What is the central message of Daniel chapter 4? God is the ultimate king. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What is the difference then between proud Nebuchadnezzar in verses 29 and 30 and humble Nebuchadnezzar in verses 34 and 37? Well, one difference is where he is looking. 
In verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar is on the roof of his palace and he's looking down on all his subjects. He's admiring all his accomplishments. But in verse 34, he's lifting his eyes to heaven. And it's when he lifts his eyes to heaven that we're told that his reason returned to him. This is a crucial difference between the proud and the humble. Those who are proud glory in themselves and therefore they tend to look down on others. But those who are humble are looking up to God and they know their smallness compared to Him. The prideful person glories in self. The humble person is caught up in the glory of God. Their attention is directed to God. Their affection is for the name and the fame and the glory of God. They are not so concerned about the name and the fame and the glory of themselves. We see this again in the words Nebuchadnezzar speaks. In verse 30, proud Nebuchadnezzar is speaking of himself. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? It's, it's I, it's me, it's... And then in verses 34 through 37, the words are completely different. The focus is on, on God, His kingdom, His dominion. Rather than talking about his own accomplishments and glory, Nebuchadnezzar has discovered the greatness of God, the attributes of God, the works of God, and Nebuchadnezzar is now caught up in the wonder of God. Let me quote C.S. Lewis one more time. Lewis said, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seems cheerful, an intelligent chap who takes a real interest in what you say to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to be enjoying life so easily. He won't be thinking about humility. He won't really be thinking about himself at all. Or to put it more succinctly, humility is not thinking less of oneself, but thinking of oneself less. The humble person doesn't walk around saying, look at me or woe is me. The humble person is more caught up with God than who he or she is on their own. The humble person is more concerned with others, more concerned with eternal souls created in the image of God. Indeed, when we've come to trust and rest in the sovereignty of our Most High God, when we know that our souls are secure in God's strong hands, we can think less of our own needs, we can worry less about our own concerns, and we can give ourselves more to loving God and loving His people and loving others. How do you kill pride in your life? By beholding regularly the wonder of the glorious God who makes all our glory look like dust. But not only do we behold this God, we approach this God and we entrust ourselves to Him. We entrust ourselves to God through Jesus Christ, His Son, the mediator between God and man. And when we have believed on Christ and now have God as our Father, who can be against us? We don't need the praise of men any longer. 
What good's the praise of men when I have God on my side? We, we don't need the attention of others like we used to need their attention. We have what we need. And the great love of God that is already beyond our comprehension. The mighty God whose dominion is an eternal dominion is now our God and He loves us with an eternal, uh, unbelievable, uncomprehensible, unimaginable love. So when we come to see who we are in Christ, when we've come to have our God as our God and to trust Him and to know that through Christ we are safe and secure, in light of all of that, we can walk around with more thoughts of God in our minds than thoughts of self, more thoughts of others in our minds than thoughts of self. We can give ourselves to callings for Jesus' sake. We can work heartily as unto the Lord and whatever He's given us to do for His name and His fame. Unbeliever, don't walk around in selfish pride one more day because there is something better for you. There is the knowledge of God. Pride turns you in on yourself. Frankly, pride makes you like an animal. Pride makes you less than God created you to be. You can return to your true form, to true humanity, By being what God made you to be in the beginning. A worshiper. One who knows God and loves God and is caught up in the glory and works of God. For all of us in this room, I pray that we will know what it is to humble ourselves in the dust and to rejoice in who God is for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.